Welcome back to How AI Built This, the podcast dedicated to entrepreneurial and dairy data storytelling, not dairy. Uh, as always, we're brought to you by the wonderful people at Cathcart Technology, recruitment experts in all things technology, uh, and Infer, a new sponsor who I happen to work for, a startup for building the next generation of analytics, uh, empowering analysts to do kind of advanced analysis all within SQL. Um, so thank you to them. On today's show, I'm speaking to Ross Turner, who is the Chief Product Officer at ARIA NLG. The tagline I found for ARIA, Ross, and you can let me know if this is right, ARIA brings language to data analytics, which is quite nice. Yeah. Um, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure to be here. I was going to try and put more in about ARIA and what NLG was, but because I'm so uneducated on that particular field, I wanted to just put it all in one later on so we can talk about ARIA in way more detail. But, you know, I like that. I like the way that was described. So on the show, we always do a little bit of a walkthrough, a bit of an education background before we jump into what you're doing now. So I think I'm right in saying your background's fairly computer science heavy, right? So you did like HNC, first class degree, and then a PhD um, at University of Aberdeen, all kind of around computer science, right? Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. Um, you know, I d- didn't get on so well at school, I guess. Wanted to kind of leave and get out into the working world. And then I decided, okay, I'm going to go back to the night school did pure computing that got me into university do pure computer science and then i just carried on so my phd was also in the computer science area but it was uh, natural language generation right which as you know is ai that's cool so how how big of a gap was there between like i don't want to do school to going back uh, it wasn't too long i think about four years was enough to realize okay um <laughs> i need to do something about my career did you do anything weird and wonderful in between, like any weird jobs? I didn't. I did the typical kind of young person thing. I just bummed around and messed about for a while, as as you do, right? Uh, no, that's why we did have one person on the show a long time ago that had done every job ever before finding his way into like stats, maths, computer science, and it was really funny because like he wow. just listed ev- every job that you could think of. So yeah, I did that for a bit, and it's funny that you should say that. Like I just didn't really like school, and then. I've got a PhD in computer science, uh, but yeah, you're right. It doesn't need that time sometimes in between. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think if you're if you're 16, 17, 18 or whatever, you don't really know what you want to do, right? At that age, no. like, I didn't really appreciate. I mean, I appreciated that for my own, like what I wanted to do. Like, I didn't really know what to do, so everything was quite generic. But now that I've had a kid, I'm like, how do you be- expect people to know what they want to do when they're sixteen until they're like? Well, now in Scotland, what, 75 retirement age by the time we're all that age? Like, it's quite a big question to answer when you're 16. As yeah, maybe you've done it the, the right way. Um, and yeah, I was going to say that you're perhaps not coincidental that your PhD was kind of focused on natural language generation, given what you now do. When you were doing it, was was AI a thing? Like, did people say like, oh, I do AI? Oh, for sure. It was definitely a thing, right? I mean, it's been going since the 50s and 60s now. I guess the thing that inspired me was um, around about 2004, 2005, some of the lecturers were doing a research project. Essentially, this is in the weather forecasting domain. And they did an experiment and they actually found that end users preferred some of the computer generated texts over the human generated texts. Um, that was kind of a big thing that blew up a little bit. You know, the kind of news articles, news agencies picked it up and, and everything. So. Yeah, um, I kind of got to the end of my degree and had a first class to be in computer science. wasn't that easy to get a job, so we're talking 2005 or so. Kind of a lot of the graduate programs were closed because I hadn't really done, you know, the the hires and stuff at school. 
just seems mental. You got a first class degree, and it's like, yeah, but you didn't do higher drama five years ago, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But but I think this is how these graduate programs work, right? They just go through yeah. like you, you've got thousands and thousands of applications, and all oh, this guy didn't do higher whatever, you know, scrub it. So yeah, so I mean, I did well in, in pure computer science. I kind of got offered, okay, do you want to do this um, PhD? And the nice thing about it back then, it was actually sponsored by um, a company. Oh, cool. Uh, which is also nice. So I got a lot of practical experience of actually building something at a company while studying. I mean, it was a lot of work. I wouldn't always recommend it. It's the best way to do it, but it was nice in terms of, you know, career progression. Yeah, no, I remember we had uh, we had someone else on the show, uh, Adam Schroker, who exactly the same. His PhD was at a company. And it just like, because a PhD is a full-time job, like no matter how you skin it. But if you're doing it with a company, it feels like it gives you that little extra insight into like why you're doing it maybe yeah i mean yes and 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 no right so it gives you this idea right okay what's the practical application of it but then on the other side on the academic side they're saying okay where's the theory so it's it's kind of like getting that balance between okay at the end of this i still need to make some kind of contribution to knowledge yeah that's fair but but you're right it definitely gives you a unique um, perspective on things that's that's for sure um and a question we always ask when someone has done a PhD, two two questions actually. Did you enjoy it? So we'll start with that one. I mean, I think ultimately yes, but it's a lot of hard work, right? And but I think when I think back, I enjoyed like the fourth year part of university, um, independent study. Maybe I could have stopped at a master's, but like I said, I think I was in the fortunate position that because I was working with a company, that kind of kept me engaged because I was spending, you know, maybe. 40 to 50% of the time working at the company as well, right? And actually seeing results of what you're trying to do in in an applied fashion, right? Yeah. Um, no, that makes sense. And then the other question is that we always think or ask, sorry, was academia a long-term option? So you did a couple of postdoc research roles, one in Edinburgh and one in Aberdeen, I think. So was it a long-term career opportunity for you at any point? Um, I mean, it's definitely something, I mean, I thought about, I mean, it's a long time ago now, I guess, but, um, I mean, I think the thing about the group that, that was in Aberdeen at the time and, and ultimately kind of what's, what's spawned, um, the opportunities in the future is they were very practically minded. So like I mentioned, that kind of first system that kind of had that big result where they found, okay, these, these texts seem to be preferable for end users, these computer generated texts over human written texts. And that was part of, a, of an industry collaboration. And at the time, you know, we were doing lots of these types of, of projects. So I guess as far as academic groups go, um, they were very industry focused, very practical minded. And, um, you know, that's at, at least the two, um, the postdocs that I did, which were, were pretty short, really, in this the scheme of things, we were always building things, which is always what I found the most fun. And so, I well, don't want to spoil it in case it takes away from some of the story later, but is there people now, for, was there people from your PhD and postdocs that are played an integral part in ARIA? Sure, yeah. I mean, I mean that's one of the nice things, right? I mean, it it's, has this kind of really nice founding story around it. You know, a lot of the people are still around there, right? It's got this huge core of expertise that of kind of people that have known each other, kind of been along with the whole kind of story in terms of just when it was an academic thing and then becoming an industry. So, yeah, we talked about postdoc being relatively brief. Since that postdoc in Edinburgh, correct me if I'm wrong, 
you've been in Berlin since then, right? Which I think is over 10 years. Yeah, it's been 13 years. Now. Just what, one quick correction. So um, my postdoc, it was with the University of Edinburgh. I was employed with them, but I was actually it's still in Aberdeen to work oh, with cool. the same group. So it's uh, yeah, very consistent. But yeah, um, 2009, I moved to, to Berlin. Um, nice. And so how did that... So in fact, because what we normally do on the show is walk through different parts of different people's roles and stuff, but there's quite a lot to unpick. So we're not going to go through every role. You worked with some pretty big names. There was like, Nokia in the machine learning team, Aria as a principal engineer. Then you had some experience in like product, some experience as a head of data science. So loads of really interesting stuff. But it's probably worth doing a bit of a run through on like how did you end up in Berlin in 2009? And then kind of how did that career kind of just like flow a little bit, I suppose? Yeah, I guess it's it's an interesting one, right? So obviously um, there was a bit of a recession on 2008, 2009. You know, I've been... Um, poor student for quite a while kind of you know my wife was kind of paying the bills and and, and <laughs> right pretty much but yeah I mean it's an interesting one so at the time I was kind of thinking okay and I want to go into industry I made that kind of decision I said okay I'm, I'm not going to do academia anymore there was an opportunity um to found a company called data to text limited which I kind of hung around for a while we've been talking about it for a long time but at the same time, you know, I needed kind of money. Um, I made the decision I wasn't going to stay with academia. So there really wasn't many jobs. We're talking like 2008, 2009. Nobody was hiring. And ironically, while I was kind of waiting around to see what was going to happen with, with this company, Data to Text, um, I actually got two offers <laughs> basically at the same time. And uh, one of them is in Berlin. And back then, it was Nokia Maps. And they basically bought a company called Gate5 GmbH in 2006. And then I think that was about 60 people in Berlin and they were just scaling this thing and making it, you know, really huge. So I think we went from about 60 people to over a thousand in a few years. And then obviously 2008, they bought Navtech as well uh, in Chicago, right? The US mapping company. So it was really all the maps um, thing was a big thing then. Obviously Google Maps competitor, um, Navtech were an 8 out of 10 car uh, navigation systems it was an exciting opportunity and it was kind of roughly related to what I'd actually studied which was good <laughs> so um, I was working on um, the search backend for, for Nokia Maps and part of my PhD was actually on georeference data tech so maps this type of stuff because it was kind of really, with a weather company there's a big kind of geographic component to it so it kind of fit pretty well, considering it was kind of my first tech job. It wasn't my first job for sure, but then it was my, my first job in tech. Yeah, nice. And you mentioned your wife already. So was it a big decision to move to Berlin or were you both like, do you know what? That sounds fun. Let's try it out. Yeah, we're, we're a little bit like both of us. Um, we're a little bit like, you know, that's fun. Let's, let's try it out type of thing. Well, no, I mean, it just worked out well because, I mean, she was working on, on contracts as well, right? So it wasn't so secure for her. Um, it was about time I kind of pulled my weight in the whole, you know, the marriage equation there as well. So, uh, yeah, she was, she was pretty supportive, but, you know, she followed me out there. I went out there first and, and then she came, I think, four, four or five months later. How was the German before you went? Pretty bad. Um, it, it was... Um, it was a bit embarrassing, right? I'd actually studied German at school and got a reasonable 
mark, but then this is like, I think 15 years later since I'd like spoken a word of German. So it was basically starting again. So it's a hard language to go from scratch as well. Well, it, it is. Unfortunately, it wasn't completely from scratch, right? But um, yeah, it's like 50% of it. You can almost word for word translate with English, right? Because English is a Germanic language, right? So you, can, you think you're doing okay, right? And then the other 50%, just forget it. Like, you know, word order is completely different. You've got this thing called separable verbs that we don't have in, in English. And, you know, so you've got to pull a bit off the front of the verb, stick it at the end of the sentence and all, all this type of stuff. There's the whole like um, like formality as well, right? There's like a if you're talking to like an older person or, or or certain groups, like there's a real formal version of German, which like in the UK you still really have that. Like obviously there's there's maybe a level of politeness depending on who you speak to, but like the language is the same. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we got rid of thou and art and all that type of stuff of where I could write in English, didn't we? No, but I'll be honest, it, it, it's a strange one, right? So I live in Brandenburg now, just on the edge of Berlin. Um, so we moved out of the city quite some time ago, and we were in Mitte on Sunday night, and we're waiting in a queue to get into a restaurant, and I started speaking German to the people in the queue, and they had no idea what I was saying. Because basically, Mitte, you know, there's very little German spoken, right, in the center of Berlin anymore. It's so international. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Yeah, because did it have that start-up? tech feel when you went over there or was that like was it kind of starting with obviously nokia taking over companies and stuff like was that the start of it yeah that that was kind of the start of it right i mean so kind of yeah early 2000s 2000s i think it was you know still very trendy very fashionable but it was also very affordable so you know a lot of very clever people kind of moved to the city obviously nokia was a big employer there were one or two others Obviously, with the um, kind of the iPhone thing that happened around, was it 2009, when, 2010, when they really started taking over, some of the engineers dispersed. Um, and then there was this part in kind of northern Mitte um, around Torstrasse. Um, it's called Silicon Alley. I, I mean, I've never been to California, so I don't know. But I mean, I've heard it's very kind of um, Silicon Valley-esque, right? Lots of people sitting around in cafes with laptops, you know, and trying to build companies and do great things, right? Yeah. No, that sounds cool. Um, and yeah, you, you spent a bit of time at Nokia, like you said, and then um, was it after Nokia you first joined Aria? Is that right? Well, yeah, so it, it's, it's an interesting story, right? So I, I was, I guess, one of the co-founders of Data Text, but like I moved to Berlin, so we kind of always kind of stayed in contact. And um, yeah, I mean, essentially Data Text got acquired by Aria, right? And, you know, they were kind of like, hey, do you want to come back and, and, and do some stuff? And I was like, well, by, by that point, I was like on the second child already. And, uh, you know, we just kind of moved house and stuff, like moved out um, to the outskirts of Berlin and stuff. I was like, well, I can't really, um, you know, come back and just up sticks and, and whatever. So it's okay. You can, uh, you know, we can work it out. So, yeah, I mean, I was back there uh, working for quite some time uh, remotely. Um, I had a bit of remote working experience anyway, right? So even in, 2009 we were working a lot with people in Finland people in Boston at Nokia and stuff so you know remote working was was still a thing um obviously it's a lot bigger now yeah so I did that for um yeah like three years basically working remotely from Berlin there's a lot of travel though um obviously because company I'm in right now we're still very distributed so I was you know flying around a lot and uh yeah it's funny when people say that 
like people that hadn't done remote work prior to COVID are like, yeah, it doesn't work. Like you need to get back, like back into the office. Like companies have been doing it for forever, just yeah. in a, just a different way. So yeah, I always find that, I always find that a strange take when people say that it'll never, it'll never catch on. It'll never work. Like people have done it for way before COVID. It's just like oh, yeah. I said, a bit, a bit more mainstream. And then, yeah, you did another couple of roles after. So you ended up in more of like a product focus role and a head of data science role. So have all your roles kind of spanned trying to find insight with data essentially, but just in different, different titles, different guises. Um, I think so a little bit, right? I mean, I've always, I tried to get away from the software engineering part, right? Because I found myself kind of like running teams, being asked to do stuff. And to be honest, it was kind of like project managed and they didn't really understand what the business value of it was, right? Like you see, I mean, I went and did another couple of roles. I worked for a big e-commerce platform um, with Ladens Isla. It's owned by Axel Springer, the big publishing house. I went there in there as a product manager, senior product manager. I built up a kind of small team and they say, oh, you seem to know a bit about engineering. <laughs> so they, they kind of promoted me to head of engineering, but I was still doing a lot of the product stuff. And then, yeah, I mean, you've probably seen from my CV, I went to Boston Consultant Group, but I went to the, the corporate venturing arm of that. So Boston yeah. Consultant Group to Joke Ventures. Um, and that's all about basically incubating corporate startups, right? Um, so I learned a lot there as well. I went in as like a, a data science lead was my, my title, but like I did some roles on some of the on the ventures that we built as a venture CTO, um, et cetera oh, cool. as well. So yes, to answer your question succinctly, um, I've had a lot of experience building data products and it still seems to follow me around now, right? So everybody says, oh, your experience is in data. And it's, well, I guess so, yeah, but um, I've done a lot of other things around it as well. And probably what interests me most now is really trying to figure out, rather than go off and build something, to say, hey, we've got a bunch of data, can we do something useful with it? I actually just try and find where the business value is. Right. And if you take this product centric approach or business focused, right? So where you're saying, okay, what are we actually solving for here first? What's the business value? What's going to drive better business outcomes? And essentially, you know, what, what, what's the North Star? Right. Because at least what I've seen in my experience, you get a lot of really, really smart people and they come to meetings and they like, blast off a load of like metrics right so uh, mean absolute error is x right and we've beaten this benchmark by y right and it's like okay but does that really matter <laughs> right i mean we, that, that's the question right like what does it mean in terms of like monetary value what does it mean in cost reductions efficiency savings whatever you want to call it that's kind of i guess where my my career went and like you say just kind of leading um kind of data product initiative that's interesting though because so we've not done a uh a podcast in i don't know between four and six months and every episode before this one has had an element of the show at some point where it says to be a really good data scientist or a really good data person you need to care about like the business outcome and like i, I didn't even write that down today at any point as a question because like it almost just feels like it's just true right like we've now as a small subset or a small sample size, we've had 70 odd episodes and almost every single person has said exactly the same thing. Like you need to drive business value, whatever that means to your business, using these 
technologies or this insight or this data, whatever it is, like, and you need to remember who you're presenting that back to a lot of the time, which is probably why data people make good product managers in a lot of companies nowadays. Like they have data product managers, probably to keep the hardcore data scientists and engineers like on track a little bit. Is it that that's fair? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's fair. I think it's also just like the new reality, right? So if if everything's becoming very data driven, it's not just you know, the engineers and the product managers, it's also the business people as well, right? And the project managers or whatever. So you can't really get away from it nowadays. Obviously in the startup world, it's it's a little bit different because you're normally starting with a blank slate, right? You've got a cold start problem normally. Yeah. Um, but if you've worked in any company that's been going for a, for a while, especially if it's a, an internet company, right? Then there's going to be a lot of data around and that's going to be a core uh, asset to your business. And it probably helps too, right? That data is is a more commonly discussed like topic, like data analytics, data insight, and it's more accessible now. Like because of all the advancements and technology under the hood, you can get insights a lot more quickly. So a business, a business who maybe used to say they want, I want some ML, it was probably unattainable for a lot of those people. Whereas now it's not. So those businesses have to understand it a little bit more and then the people that are providing the insight have to explain it to them and they're maybe not necessarily as technical whereas before it was maybe like a little bit more of a closed club like if you knew data and you knew the product you could get some insights but if you didn't then tough yeah yeah that's right and i think it's basically communicating it in a coherent way a consistent and coherent way across the organization right and you know, you probably heard about these kind of buzzwords like around data literacy and, yeah. uh, and these types of things, right? So if you, if you quote like the Gartners of the world, you know, it's like data literacy is its ability to read, write, and communicate data in context, right? And like, But it's actually also understanding the techniques applied, being able to describe the, the use case application and like we've already said, right, the business value. And I guess that dovetails nicely into maybe energy, I guess, in, in, in a way, right? So if we look at data literacy, you know, energy is part of that, I believe, is the kind of communication and context aspect, right? So if, if you've got a data literate organization, you're basically empowering the workforce, right, to ask the right questions about data, understand and interpret their results, test the hypothesis, and I've already said it, right, communicate that clear and coherent story to stakeholders. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a big part of it, right? And obviously, if you can have narrative around that, make it more clear for people, that that's going to help on that message. Yeah, no, 100%. And yeah, let's jump into ARIA then. So we've made it kind of, I must have stopped here, and there's probably lots we've missed out, but you rejoin ARIA, and obviously there's a lot of history there, in roughly February 2020 as Chief Product Officer. Was there always just kind of like a pull for you to go back then, or did, did did something come up that you were just like, I need to do this? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 an interesting one. So you know, I was working, you know, in a fairly high stress environment, I guess. Um, you know, three small kids. Well, they're not so small anymore. Um, they certainly speak better German than me, that's for sure. But there you go. But uh, yeah, so it's kind of like pretty stressful. So traveling around all the time, et cetera, et cetera. Um. So obviously, you know, the two main scientists or chief scientists at um, ARIA were actually my PhD supervisors, right? So I was actually Yaji's first ever PhD student back in 2000, whenever it was, four or five. That's cool. Um, 
So we kind of all know each other anyway, right? Um, really well. So, you know, it came up, somebody kind of approached me and say, hey, you know, would you like to come back? You know, don't worry, you can, you can stay in Berlin, um, all this type of stuff. So, you know, that, that's kind of how it happened pretty, pretty informally. I think it took a while. I had, you know, it was kind of a pretty big decision on my side, but. It's really cool though. And you mentioned stayed in Berlin. So is most of, or is all of the UK area company in Aberdeen, is that right? Not all. Um, so they do, um, distributed working as well within the UK. So there's obviously the main office in the UK is, um, in Aberdeen, but there's also people in, uh, in in England as well, right around the London area. Nice. And then there's a there's a white there's a global team right now. Like it's like you're all over the show. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a New Zealand company. It's headquartered in uh, New Jersey, just outside New York. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So about an hour from from Manhattan. We also through acquisition, we've got some people in in Canada, and also you know a few people in Australia, right? So it's really very international. That is some crazy time zones to try and yeah. do like a Teams meeting on a Monday morning. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> Just like always online with loads of coffee. No, that's really cool. Um, and then, so if people don't know what ARIA do, or even if they really don't understand like natural language generation, and I know it's quite closely linked to natural language processing, right? Yeah. Give, give us the kind of the background on ARIA and then I suppose kind of NLG, NLP and, and where you see that kind of fitting. Yeah, so I mean... I mean, you already talked about it, right? I mean, essentially, you know, we're a, a language technology company in a nutshell, and I'll try and explain it very, very succinctly if I can. Um, we take structured data, structured information, and we generate human quality narrative. When I say human quality, is indistinguishable from, from what um, a human might write. So it's data to text or structured data to text of your data is in a, a spreadsheet or um, a database you know we can generate um, a narrative around it and we've we've actually got a whole technology suite um, around that so we've got something called aria studio which essentially um, allows you to write your own um, nlg applications and publish them to an api right um so that that's kind of one part of the the stack We've also got um, out-of-the-box capabilities, right? So it's called ARIA apps. And essentially that allows you to, for example, if you've got data in a, in a BI dashboard, um, you can generate specific types of narratives around it. So we can do very simple things like um, narrate uh, a pie chart or a line chart or, or, or a bar graph in, a, in the dashboard. Or if you want to have um, some information around drivers and offsets or sales performance. Um, we've got a specific um, app for that, which is no-code apps, right, for, for a specific kind of user. For the more advanced kind of business users who actually want to get their hands dirty, they can they can use Studio. And like I said, they can author their own NLG applications. Uh, so that's one, that's one side of the business, enterprise business intelligence reporting, integrations with the five top BI vendors. So Power BI... Tableau, MicroStrategy, where they get this one right, um, Tipco, Spotfire, and Click. That's the fifth one. Um, we've also got an integration with Microsoft Excel. So that, that that's one part of the business. The other part of the business, we actually have um, some quick service restaurant automation. So actually, uh, in the US, we're already in around 2,500 um, domino stores. And we are um, essentially 
providing automation for, for those stores. So one part of it is taking phone calls out of the store. So we have some call center automation working with um, agents, right? And also we have analytics in the, in the stores themselves and, and also telephony, so actual hardware as well. That's nice. way more than I thought you guys did. Why would you want to like put a pie chart into text? I'm just trying to think of this in my head. Well, that, well, that's that's an interesting one. So, um, essentially, the whole thesis of how we kind of got into this stuff in the first place many years ago was there were a few results where they found that people actually make better decisions when um, visuals are augmented with text. So, you've probably heard some of the buzzwords now around augmented analytics, um, etc. A long time ago, um, some colleagues of ours did some experiments in the healthcare. And um, a lot of people would say, yeah, or these are clinicians and experts, right? Both, both junior and seniors, like we want to look at visual. It was like, okay, um, if you put them in a control context and actually make, ask them to make decisions, what people found was, especially more junior, uh, people would make varying decisions, not so much at the senior level, right? Um, when they've got experience, but the point being that people would interpret visuals in different ways. And if you put some text around it, some narrative, which is pure black and white, um, people would actually make better decisions. And it just wasn't that particular study. There was another study, I think it was in, in New Zealand, actually. Um, they looked at how people interpreted um, mobile phone instructions, and they gave them different communication mediums. They gave them like visuals only, text only, text and uh, graphics. So that's why you would want to um, augment a pie chart or a bar chart. Obviously, the more complex the visual is, the more the, the useful the narrative is, right? And then, I don't know if you can, so feel free to say you can, but is there any like examples of the Aria Studio or, or the other side of the business that were like a company or a, or a case study where they've used the technology? Yeah, so I mean, if you go to aria.com, um, the, there's actually a, a Forrester report there on, on the um, the total economic impact of it. So I mean, feel free okay. to go, go, and, go and read that. Yeah, I encourage people nice. to download that. That'd be really cool. Um, and in your role as Chief Product Officer, do you inevitably still get asked to like be involved in engineering, data science, technology, or have you managed to kind of now have more of an overseeing role? And if you have, do you miss it, like the technology side? Um, so I, I still sometimes get my hands dirty. Um, I think maybe some people like the CTO probably would prefer that I didn't. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I still get to, you know, at, at least kind of prototype, you know, code. I could even sometimes do a peer review or something of, of some code, right? But um, yeah, that's not my job. Like I say, it's more of an overview right now. But yeah, I mean, I guess the whole technical background is always helped right um so kind of being a hands-on product manager is always kind of very useful right because you understand what's going underneath going on underneath the hood and how it's developed and what the processes are behind that right yeah no 100 percent. and i suppose the company is getting well the company is so large and in so many different areas like having pr a product focused person is really important too because like you don't want to get too bogged down in in the tech when like you said you want to look at it from a bit higher up and have you kept all throughout your career have you kept like super up to date with with technology trends and like what what's happening so you can still do like you said some of the kind of rolling your sleeves up if you have to is that been a conscious effort yeah um, i mean it, it's difficult to do 
I mean, I think probably, yeah, mid, yeah, about around 2014, 2015, I was kind of doing a lot of, um, how should I say, directional work, kind of like driving the teams, driving the process. And then I realized, okay, it, it gets quite hard to keep up with all the latest trends. There's always like a new front end framework that comes out or, or something. Yeah, constantly. Right now at the moment, you know, it's a, a lot of innovation in NLP. There's always something new coming out as well. So it's, um, I tried to keep abreast of it for sure. You know, I, I might script something because I can, and I, I just don't like pushing buttons so much. But um, yeah, it's definitely more of a strategic position. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think it's the right way to go as well. So another thing we always ask on the show uh, from, it's a bit of a hangover from the days of me being in recruitment, but I still like asking it. It's about building like data teams or, or building teams in general with, with experience you've got. Is there anything you've learned over the years that's kind of stood you in really good stead for for growing i suppose any technical team really or product team um yeah it's a good question actually i mean i think the main thing is from my perspective is kind of being very information open not trying to be too top down in terms of the approach right because i mean i mean there's a lot of arguments between kind of like bottom up and top down innovation right and uh you know, the classic top-down innovation example is Apple, right? And, uh, you know, the classic bottom-up innovation example is Google, right? The 20%. Yeah. And they're both doing all right, right? They're both doing all right, right, exactly. I, yeah, and then the argument tends to be, oh, well, you know, you don't find that many Steve Jobs, right? So top-down is, is, is pretty risky, but it can be done, as you say. So, yeah, so my, from my experience, it's more about trying to let people have this growth uh, mindset. I, again, it's another buzzword you probably heard about, but um, don't talk too much. Obviously intervene when you need to. And then probably the biggest thing, at least on the data science side we were talking about earlier was this whole business value thing, right? And it's really trying to help and coach people through, okay, you're very deep in the weeds right now. And you know, you're got lots of code, you know, equations you're trying to understand algorithms etc but you almost have to bring it up a level right because if i'm if i'm struggling to kind of understand okay what what's going on here what you're doing you know how are the business stakeholders going to understand that right um so i think that's one part that can be very valuable and i think i probably learned a bit of that from consulting as well right it's always kind of keeping a a, a storyline consistent coherent storyline going through the whole phase of the the project and the product to the left no 100 i think consultant can be really good for that to be fair do you need do you think a background in nlg or nlp to get a role in a kind of i was gonna say a company like aria but any company in that field like is it super helpful to have the type of background that you had and others or would be in like an inquisitive data scientist or an inquisitive statistician or mathematician be enough to do well in that world, do you think? Yeah, I, I think it's definitely enough to do uh, well in that world. Um, so, I mean, you might have seen a lot of hype ar around the internet, right, um, at the moment on, on certain types of NLP, right, large language models, etc. Um, yeah, they're getting really annoying, actually. Everyone posting about how they use ChatGPT every day to change their life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But I think, you know, the, if you've got a statistics background, um, there is a big statistics element to this. Um, obviously, 
you know, if you're going from raw data, you need to be able to understand both the data engineering part of it and also the, you know, the stats and the analytics part of it. But certainly it, it's it's accessible to these types of roles for sure. And we, and we have yeah. we have people at Aria with those types of backgrounds as well. Um, and I feel like I accidentally skipped past this part, but where does NLG and NLP sit? Like, how are they different? Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I thought, thought you might go to that. So again, I'll try and be succinct. You can essentially split natural language processing into two parts, right? At a very, very, very coarse level, right? So NLP is is part of artificial intelligence, right? It's one of the, the, the core applications. And then when you look at NLP, um, you can split it very coarse, coarsely into natural language understanding and natural language generation, right? So natural language understanding, you're going from some linguistic information, right? That might be an audio recording or whatever, um, to data, okay? And natural language generation is the inverse process, right? So you're going from data to language, right? Obviously, there's other formulations of that possible, like text to text. You can go from English to French. Machine translation, it's part NLP. Um, but yeah, in, in a nutshell, that that's what it is. So you've got NLP split into NLU going from linguistic information to data, NLG going from data to linguistic information or language. Nice. I've definitely learned something new today. And then this is a bit of a loaded question, and I told you about it before we started. But so my new role at Infer is all about SQL. And right. well, I say that. I'm, we're not doing a sales pitch. The whole point of the company is to let data analysts or people that understand SQL give them the power to do machine learning, right? So all within SQL, what they already know. And with new commands that we've made, you can do uh, like talk analysis or something like that, just to give you an example. But the main reason I was asking you this question was, it's funny because SQL is like, it's almost like the new buzzword in the world of data science now. And I say new as in like, it just doesn't go away, but it's really had a bit of a resurgence in the last maybe, I don't know, couple of years, year. Um, whereas so much LinkedIn content and, and and Twitter content is all around SQL. And it's this language has been around for 50 years. Like, it seems a bit nuts. Does SQL play a part in, in ARIA? Or does that not really make sense with the kind of large language models that you guys are using? Well, we have we, we we have a feature called Aria Answers, right, in our in our product suite, and essentially that allows you to do um, natural. It's a natural language interface to data, right? Or again, one of the buzzwords right now is natural language query. Yeah. So basically, if you want to interact with your BI dashboard, you can do it in natural language. You can basically type in um, that query, and it, you know you'll get an answer back in natural language, right? Yeah. So. That's where we're more focused rather than having somebody type raw SQL, right? So yeah. from an interface perspective, it's natural language. Does SQL play a part in what we do? For sure, we're a software company, right? And, um, you know, there are databases, um, for sure. But from internal, in terms of the external facing products, yeah, I mean, it's natural language querying. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think that's it for data, unless there's anything... I've missed, or you want to touch on the area are up to or doing? No, I mean, I, I think I think that's really great. I mean, the one thing I, I would mention would be we have the the, the dashboard product, right? Area for BI. Um, it's possible to to sign up on our, our website for a free trial. If, oh, if nice. people are interested in using it, so just go to area.com and uh, click the free trial button. 
Nice. Do you guys do much in the way of like conferences and speaking events? Like I feel because a, a lot of companies that come from that kind of research world that, that you guys came from seem to be really good at that as well. Yeah. Um, so at the moment, we did quite a few events in, in 2022. We haven't got so much planned this year, but yeah, I mean, it is something we, we've done in the past and we do do. We continue. All right. Like I said, if, you, if you're if you into data, you can stop. I've uh, obviously do extensive research on the podcast. Everybody knows that. So I found your Twitter account. Um, and it instantly was pulled towards the fact that you mentioned martial arts. And I was like, oh, cool. I wonder what that means. And then it looks like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you're into martial arts in general, but it looks like you had a couple or at least a MMA fight. Uh, I had a few. I had a few. Um, I'm a bit old these days. Yeah, no, I mean, nowadays I just supposed to do it for fitness, um, do a bit of judo with the kids, a bit of Brazilian jiu-jitsu and, and stuff like this. But um, Judo's brutal, by the way, because unlike a few others where it's a lot of like, I know it's really technical, but the end result is you get thrown on your head. <laughs> I feel like it's quite similar. Well, 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 to be honest, it's, it's pretty stupid right so i kind of started off with amateur boxing many 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 years ago and then um quite a bit of thai boxing so i had to competed a little bit um kind of amateur semi-professional and then when i got older um i was like okay i can't do any can't, can't compete i'm too old but i need to get fit right i'm putting weight on etc uh what martial arts to like go back to right because i had three kids and stuff obviously you're taking break from training so much and i decided to go back to to judo which is probably is just as hard on the body as Thai boxing is, right? So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it, it's good. I mean, it keeps you fit, keeps you focused. I'm not a huge fan of just going to a conventional gym, I guess, and, and like running on a treadmill. So I need something to kind of keep my, my brain busy in my spare time. Yeah, I always I have said this, and a few people who are listening who know me well, I've said for about five years, I'm going to go to this like local jiu-jitsu class because really, I've, I've watched MMA for like, probably 10 years now or so and I have no interest in getting punched in the face yeah. but Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has always been like it's interesting and I've still not done it like what, oh, one day one day I've done a bit of training with a friend who's had a couple of fights but like it's uh, yeah it's a whole different world like that that level of, of training I mean it is but I mean if you look at it this way right I mean I think only 5% of people who go to type boxing in the UK actually ever compete Right, so it's more of a recreational thing. In Thailand, obviously, it's not right. It's a it's a sport. I mean, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is great. I mean, I've done that for quite a long time as well. And yeah, you don't have to compete, right? I mean, it's more about getting the the health benefits and uh, you know the mental benefits of of doing it, right? But, uh, not everybody has to be uh, you know a UFC champion or whatever. Yeah, it's too much getting punched in the face. That's the problem. <laughs> uh, not everybody wants to do that. Yeah, I mean, it certainly didn't do anything for my looks, I must admit, right? I mean, broken yeah, but, cauliflower ears, right? But you just, did it for, you just did it for fun now, right? Yeah, uh, I mean, I haven't... I think the last time I, I competed was 2012. Was it, yeah, 20, yeah, 2012 was the last time. So, yeah, 11 years ago was the last time. Um, and anyway, now I think I looked at um, the BJJ categories, and I'm now in the seniors category, so I thought, oh, I'll probably be masters at my age, but no, there's actually a seniors category. Yeah, that's always good to go back into it. But um, it was technically possible, yeah, that's true. <laughs> All right, amazing. Well, no, I really appreciate the time. Thanks for joining. I thought I knew a bit about Aria, but I've learned a lot more. And then, yeah, we'll uh, we'll we'll get this all posted up and, and links to Aria and, and, and whatever else. But no, th thank you very much for, for joining us. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure.